Hi, welcome to the Funding Blueprint, Unlocking Startup Success, presented by a Starthub. I'm your host, Cody Goff, and today you'll learn about the specific tactics that will help you craft the perfect pitch, as in how many times you need to practice it, how to get better at making connections with investors and other startup professionals, and how to get investors to listen, even if they may never use the product or service you're creating. My guest today knows what she's doing when it comes to pitches. She won 22 of 23 pitches to fund the first company she started out of her college dorm and successfully exited six years later. Kat Weaver is the CEO of Power to Pitch, a company that helps pre-seed and seed stage founders get funded faster. She and her business partner help entrepreneurs learn how to pitch, fundraise, and then directly connect their founders to investors in their industry. Here's our conversation. Well, so not going to lie, it was my business partner who would ask. I said, oh, well, I wanted 22 pitches. And she was like, okay, well, you know, of how many? And I said, 23. And she said, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> and I was like, no. So I didn't even really understand the magnitude until she was the one who pushed me to actually say, tell people it was 22 of 23. So I honestly never really talked about it much. And then people would only focus on that one loss, which funny enough, you know, people like, oh, we only went for the negative, but um, it's, it's something that changed my whole life, my whole business and what inspired my whole next ben venture in helping other founders. So I never get tired of talking about it. <laughs> good, good to know. Uh, and I've heard you talk on other podcasts about the one loss. It, it sounds to me like that was more of a, just someone else happened to be in the right place at the right time. Like it, it wasn't a failure on your part. It just kind of didn't work out. Is that about right? Oh yeah, absolutely. It was honestly, I actually thought it was one of the best pitches I've ever had ever, ever, ever done. And my mom had come all the way. I think I was in Colorado. She flew all the way out there to see it and was like, that was the best pitch I saw you ever done. And then this one woman, English was her second language. She had her PhD. She was a graduate student. She had LOIs from the top corporate companies, which, you know, in hindsight was like, what are you doing at this student pitch competition? You're insane. And she rocked it out of the park, completely deserved it. No regrets out of even attending or trying because I got a great network out of it. And it was still an incredible experience, still play, still got money. So, I mean, it was in losing that one, I still got a ton of value out of it. Sure. And, and maybe we can go back to it, but let's focus on the positive, right? Like 22 pitches, there's got to be some kind of special sauce. What do you attribute all of those successful stories to? Or, or what feedback did you hear from the people doing the funding that, that was in common across a lot of those? Yeah. So I, I really came up with this formula that I had to be so clear and concise and give the people giving me money the most confident that I would do right by it at the end of the day. So it came down to really creating a connection and educating the audience as if they were not a target consumer of the product. I realized that was really important that someone didn't have to just get it or go buy it or have to experience my product in order to understand or pass along the information. So that was a big factor. And then on top of that was so many people that I went up against and going for a specific grant in terms of a monetary value, anywhere from a thousand upwards of over thirty to fifty thousand dollars, they would talk they would either forget to completely talk about the money or in-kind services, or and or they wouldn't even mention it at all or what it would do for them or the level of impact. 
And I always made sure to take a ton of time as to what it would exactly do for me in the business and what level of return it would bring. And not just, oh, I'm grateful for this money. I made, you know, it's going to go into these top five buckets and I know exactly where to put it, where to spend it and how it's going to affect me. And I had people comment all the time saying, you know, you're the only one to address that. And then it wasn't, you know, fluffy or feel good language either. I see, so in helping founders, whether they're going for grants or raising from investors, every single founder is saying, I'm revolutionary. I'm best in class. We're on a mission. We're the only one like this. We're solving a major problem in an underserved market. Every single one, no matter what industry, they're all saying the same fluff. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't give you any specifics about the business. So I made sure that I cut all of that out. There was no industry jargon. It was just so clear and to the point and easily repeatable that it got people excited in the room and they were were easy to get connected to. And I essentially made sure I checked all the boxes off if I had a rubric. So there's a bunch of factors, but... At the end of the day, too, one question I would get is, oh, or a statement would be, oh, you're you're just a natural good speaker. When in reality, I wanted to, my first one, I wanted to throw up. I had no public speaking experience. I had no idea what I was doing, but I had to get out of my comfort zone. And I practiced 50 to 100 times the same pitch over and over and over and over again. So in the event that I got nervous, my body would still know what to do. And I think people underestimate and want to wing it or be conversational when you're talking about your business, it should be formulated and concise. So again, a lot of factors, but I made sure that, hey, this is the formula that's going to work over and over and over again. Yeah. I'm really glad you mentioned the thing about not just being kind of a natural, I'll just jump in front public speaker and practicing. I feel like practice your presentation is one of those pieces of business advice, internal or external, that people shrug off so quickly. Like, I'm just not going to, like, I know what I'm talking about. I've got the 20 slides. I built them and, and they never sit down and go through it. Have you found in working with the startups that you work with or the founders that they also tend to shrug off that advice? Yes, but to a point. So in our program, we won't give them investor introductions until we know. We do a Mac investor call with them. Mm. We go through the actual pitch. We'll test them with hard questions. And if we can tell that they haven't put in the time, we will say you're not ready and you have to set up these few things, it's easy to tell that this wasn't prepared, you still have a lot of gaps, or you haven't even practiced your questions for investors. So it's it's very easy to tell who hasn't put in the work, and we say, got to go back to the drawing board until you get those things fixed and you do put in the time because it will make or break our relationship as well. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said and zoom in on that. You said that you would create a connection with the investors and educate the audience as if they were not a target consumer of the product. So can you talk about that a little bit more? Like what's the, I guess, what's the reasoning behind that? Yeah, that's actually a really important piece. And we preach that all the time because let's say this even, this applies for grants. This applies if you're pitching a retailer. This applies even if you have some sort of tech product or you're pitching, you know, you have some NASA formulation, which we do meet those kinds of founders. You can't assume, like, investors will, and most likely, or if you're speaking to them, might have some sort of strategic connection for you. But don't assume they're going to use, buy, feel, and love your product, eat, drink, use your tech, whatever it might be, every single day and champion that. That doesn't have to be the case if they are to invest, unless, you know, of course, you're looking for strategic, and maybe they do love it. But We say, assume that they don't know or care, and then how easy is it for them to explain to someone else? 
someone else on the team, another investor that might be more strategic. We like to say that it's shape-shifting in a way where you go in with the investor mindset and you then put the investor in the consumer mindset. So you get them to feel and understand what it's like to be a consumer and they don't necessarily have to be that because that means you're the educator. You understand your business model. You understand the market. Like you're going to be the most qualified to solve the problem because you understand all fronts. I have a lot of founders who would just say, well, the investor just doesn't get it. It's like, well, that just means that you didn't know how to describe what you're doing and what you need. So you can't assume that they know. That's why we say no industry jargon. You don't need all the crazy acronyms. So my business partner, she's an active angel in 17 companies. And she will still tell our founders, speak to me as if I'm five years old. Break it down, dumb it down. And if I want to get technical with you, I will. So you could see where the questions lie. But if you think about, so if you're, you're giving a five to seven minute investor pitch, if someone goes to share your information or pass on to their deal team more about a high-level overview of the company, they're not going to regurgitate your five- to seven-minute pitch. So what are they going to repeat? What are the most impactful parts that make you shareable in a way? And that's one of the most crucial and underrated pieces of a pitch is getting super clear and concise because an audience will not always be a target consumer. As in low-hanging fruit, too. Like They shouldn't be easy to get. Assume that they're not easy to get. Yeah. So the elevator pitch really is what you're talking about. Like a two to three sentence, like really boiled down way of communicating it in like 30 seconds that will be sticky, right? And stick in their minds. Yeah. So we require, we do a, a 60 second pitch and a five to seven minute investor pitch in our program. Because the 60 second is actually going to get used a hundred times more than that five to seven one. It's really, really crucial to have the really short bit to pass along And then the five to seven is with the impression of, hey, if an investor gives you 15 minutes of their time, can you have time for pleasantries, the core pitch, Q&A, and next steps? So having a super short rehearsed formulation of who you are and what you do is key. Yeah. It's funny because so much of what you're saying also applies to podcasting. Weirdly, like I've been a podcast producer for a long time. I've worked in radio and I like you want to get to the point. Um, you want to, to your point earlier, not just use generic jargon and fluff. Like I could have invited you on the show and, you know, just asked you, talk to me about your LinkedIn bio and then hope that you tell me something like, you know, you got to work hard to like be successful. Like that doesn't help anybody. Right? Yeah. Give me the tangible specifics. Like I even, I did, um, I, I feel like panels at conferences are usually so vague. So I tried to think about, all right, what are the the pieces? Like if someone's taking notes, then I know I've done my job. And I love, it became a thing on LinkedIn now when I've done some in-person speaking stuff. People will come up to me with their notepads of the tangible takeaways that they have. And then I, that's like the biggest compliment ever. Awesome. There's already, you've already given so many tangible takeaways, like about the elevator pitch, about being specific, about practicing. Um, you know, I know that on your website and in some of the materials I've read from you, relationships are super important, right, to uh, to a founder's success. Now, you already talked about how maybe you're not like the the number one public speaker. Like that's maybe not your the first thing you would think. Uh, you had to practice, right? Well, what about founders who who aren't really great at like with social skills? I mean, is are there are there traits they can develop or important things they can cultivate so that they can then take those 
into their investor conversations and, and start to form really, you know, the relationships that will help them get what they're trying to get? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a firm believer that those skills can be learned. They're not natural to everyone. It's like a muscle. Not People aren't born with superhuman jacked strength and are, you know, natural. some are naturally athletic. Yeah, but to really develop certain muscles, you have to work on it and put in the effort. And I think that has to do with networking, social, and speaking skills. And especially for those who are uncomfortable, it's forcing on an almost weekly basis, like you're doing exercises to get in front of networking groups, practicing the, the pitch in short bits, recording yourself, practicing it, getting the reps in. And it's funny, I even told my husband didn't know for the longest time, I get so uncomfortable at networking events. I can't just show up and just jump into a conversation as talkative as I might be. I prefer, you know, I would just hope that someone would come up to me. And he's like, what are you talking about? You can pitch in front of 10,000 people. That doesn't make any sense. But I said, well, I'm uncomfortable, but I'm actively working on it because I know it's good for me and to really develop my skills. And so I try to attend, you know, events on a weekly, if not, you know, at least bi-weekly basis and go through that. It's a matter of, um, there's a really great app called Speako, S-P-E-E-K-O, where you can practice your speaking skills. It'll tell you if you have good eye contact and good tonality and things like that. So there's a lot of great tools now that people can use, but it's got to be something that you want to improve and take active notice and practice of. We have a lot in common. I, When I go to networking events, I am terrified slash miserable, uh, just anxious. I just can't. And it's the same as you. Like someone walks up to me, I will open up and it's great. I, I tell people all the time, the only reason I met my wife is because we were at a bar and a, a, a coworker of mine introduced us. But if she hadn't done that, zero chance I ever would have said anything to her. So when you go to these networking events, what do you do? Like what mindsets you have? What tactics do you have to practice that outgoing element? Yeah, I would say I have a rehearsed, you know, few liner up to if I know I'm talking to someone longer, my 30 and 60 second spiels in a way. And I also make sure that I'm asking the person I'm with certain questions. And if I want to continue to re-engage, even if it's short bit, do I want to add them on LinkedIn? I don't give business cards because I ended up losing them, changing a bunch. So I'm like, okay, if I'm going to really make use of this interaction, I'll try and add them on LinkedIn and it's a conversation starter if we have mutual connections, things like that. And then it's a matter of, you know, what can I do to help them? Because if you ask those things or think of natural connections you have, that person is going to remember you. And it's easy practice. And, you know, not every networking event person you meet is going to be a fruitful conversation. But I have certain checkbox in my mind that it's like an if-then situation. I'll do these certain things to make sure that I'm optimizing my time. I'm not just there to sit around and say hi to people. I think of it as this is, I'm going to make use of every single connection and conversation. But the most important is I've got a couple liner about who I am, what I do, and then my longer spiel if they think it's interesting and want to know more, or if I know they're more technical in the industry. Do you mind if I ask specifically, like, what is that 30 second one sound like? Yeah, let's see how I can do. <laughs> so with someone brand new, I just introduced myself. I'm Kat Weaver. I'm the founder of Power to Pitch. So I actually started a company in college, won a bunch of pitches to fund it. 
and sold it after six years. And my parents used to joke that I should pitch for a living instead of actually running the business. So I was coaching founders on the side and it took off. And that's when I sold and exited the company and started Power to Pitch with the whole mission of helping founders get funded faster. So we specifically help pre-seed and seed with their pitch deck fundraising strategy, and then we'll directly connect them with investors in their industry. And that's my main kind of goal. I'll personalize it a little bit at the beginning where it's something unique and proprietary to me, and then end it with, it's very strategic of this is exactly what I do now, and this is the core consumer of who I help. So if they know of someone in a room or in their natural network, they can think, okay, pre-seed or seed stage founder, if they're not technical, then I'll just say early stage entrepreneur. In industry agnostic, I can say certain industries. If I have an idea of the event and who's in the room, I'll t- I'll switch some of my buzzwords there essentially to see if it's more relevant to them and see what questions I'll get so I can elaborate more on the parts that are important to them. Great. And, and typically, what kind of follow-up is that? Do you get a lot of follow-up questions from there or do they share about themselves? Uh, typically, they'll ask about industry or success. And then I'll say we've helped founders raise over $14 million in grants and venture. They'll ask about the business model. And I say it's a coursing community. I'll talk about the flexibility. Founders are with us until their last check comes in the door, which is unlike any accelerator. And we're not broker dealers. So we don't take a percent of the founders raise. We help them raise a million. They keep a million. And then typically I'll ask, I don't want to keep it about me. So I make an effort to ask questions about them and what they do. And then it kind of goes from there and it's a bit more natural once you get them engaged. That was, I would give you a round of applause if I had a soundboard. Um, that it is, it's like, it's clear, it's clearly you, you, I don't want to say it's clear you rehearsed that because it didn't sound rehearsed. It, it's clearly you've prepared and it's clear that you have put thought into that and gone through it a few times. So I would encourage our listener to rewind a couple times and, and just listen back a few times. Also, we might be able to skip the, the self-promotional bit at the end of this episode because that, I mean. <laughs> you asked for my 30 second, hey, if I can't pitch, then that's a problem if that's kind of what I'm doing for a living. So thank goodness you thought that was good. But like I said, I'll, I'll trade out some details. But the important part is, I have practiced and rehearsed and seen what people will ask or where their questions are so I can iterate. It didn't start like that. And also my first company, I had practiced that pitch so much that my parents said they're going to stop coming to watch my pitches and they could repeat it verbatim because they knew it was the same thing. I said, well, it works, doesn't it? So then what's the problem? And they would laugh, but I mean, it, you know, there's a method to the madness. And so you didn't have a custom, you didn't shift, you know, 22 times. It was essentially the same thing. There's not a lot of like tailoring two different types of investors necessarily. No, actually in the grant and investor process is, is pretty similar. So what our founders do is that five to seven minute investor pitch, they'll actually cut, copy and paste and put that into grant applications because all of them want to know about your story the problem, solution, the team, market, how you make money, what traction you've had, financials, what do you need, what would you do with the funds? That's standard across all of those opportunities. It's just making sure that if you've got a character count, you're sticking to that. If you get in-kind services, are you also addressing that? Or it's a matter if if someone is more industry-specific, where my first company was wearable wrist wallets and other wearable accessories, Someone was in the CPG space, I knew I could get more technical on SKUs and margins and wholesale versus if it was 
oh, we just want to help female business owners. I would speak more generically. Or if it was, you know, a certain trade or industry, then that's how you would kind of address it. But not too, too much has changed, I would say, across the line. Great. Good advice again. Um, you know, you said earlier on in that one pitch you uh, that didn't work out for you that you felt like it was like the best pitch ever. Is there a certain thing where where you see founders come back to you and they say, you know, I didn't get the funding, but I feel like the pitch was just so great. What could have gone wrong? What what's this? What's the blind spot that's happening there, or where do you think the disconnect is happening the most? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a one size fits all, but I just I knew that I almost got no questions from the judges, not one which meant that I answered everything in the rubric so clearly when every other founder was getting a ridiculous amount of questions and they were getting cut off for time. So it was a level, it was almost like a compliment that I was so clear and concise that they all looked at each other and said, great job, no questions. And then internally, I'm like, okay, you know, I got this. So, and then for the other founders, you know, investors, especially female and underrepresented founders secured less than 1.9% of venture last year. And this past quarter is 1.6%. It is crazy the amount of bias and things that go on in, for that group and the lack of the natural network and focus on those, you know, um, those groups. But a lot of what we'll say is, you know, we, we take note of why they say no. We actually track that. Was it in terms of numbers? Is it you're too early or too far along? And then we say, do you have someone who's of interest? So we, every single meeting is an opportunity for another connection and learning. It's not wasted time, but you do have to be specific on stage and in industry. So we just make sure that they actually log every bit of feedback that they get. Cause then we can iterate based on one founder was constant rejection from VCs. And so when we went the angel route, eight new investors came in. And so it's a matter of, we had to have that feedback and you must have to reach that point of like, I'm almost giving up to really figure out where the new need is to be able to iterate. And that happens. It's totally normal. I mean, funds will see anywhere from a thousand pitches a year and choose to invest in five to 10. So it's not uncommon to get hundreds of no's before you get a yes. I'm really surprised about the the percentage. Like, you know, I've been interviewing a lot of people in the startup ecosystem and looking around and seeing who is the CEO and who are the founders. And I, I, my perception from the outside, kind of semi-inside doing podcasts about startups is that it's a pretty relatively diverse kind of um, industry um, where I'm seeing a lot of, a little bit of everybody, all kinds, you know, all walks of life, um, founding companies, trying to found companies. So that, I mean, that like 1.6%, like less than 2% um, seems outrageous. And there's so many women at VCs uh, that... Now, but also think about if there's, and I know these women who work at these funds and maybe they're the first or second female employee they've ever had. And mm -hmm. I've literally had them tell me that their fund managers came to them and said, we're looking for a token. That exists to this day. It is 2023. We have some um, investors we've heard will say, we will not invest in women who are about to get pregnant or pregnant or who have kids. It takes them away from running the business. Dads don't get asked that question. And we'll have ones who say, oh, you know, I wouldn't mention that you have kids, you know, and just 
the we hear the craziest things. And there was a Harvard study done that women get asked more um, reactive questions versus the guys getting proactive, like high vision questions. The women are getting, when are you getting, you know, it's tighter on break-even numbers, you know, business model, exit strategy versus the guys getting vision questions. Not every single one. But so the women at some of these funds sometimes have to put up with the bro vibe that's going on there. But there are a good handful of buy female for female funds or buy immigrant founders for immigrant founders or buy minorities and for minorities. There's a ton out there. It just may not fill out your whole round. But the craziness in those comments are, are still out there. It really is such a shame. So we try to educate and share on LinkedIn about that for, you know, to, to educate more people, but it's unfortunately still going on. Yeah, wow. And it runs so counter to my experience. I worked for a startup that was just burning through cash. It was a small media company. It literally was just setting it on fire, just like a million, two million gone. Where's where's the profit? There was no return on investment. Well, the VC board decided to basically replace the founder and CEO uh, with a woman, uh, my, my former boss, Lisa, and she took the place from no profit to turning a pretty healthy profit and exited, got it, got it sold and acquired by a major media company within a year. Uh, and that just happened in like real time. And I'm just sitting there like, how did you do this? Just like a ninja. I've got to get on this podcast. Um so yeah, anyway, I anyway, I clearly yeah. I'm outraged as much as you are at these numbers. Wow. Yeah, think about it. Let's 19 women women out of every 1,000 people. And then in minorities, it's like five out of a thousand. That's crazy and really disheartening. So yeah. that's why we we share help as as much as we can. Definitely. Yeah. Um well, um, do you primarily work with uh, any particular demographic or all walks of life are coming to you for help? All walks of life. We don't turn away any great founder. I would say we're about 70% female and underrepresented founders just naturally because we have a lot of experience in supporting those groups and how to get through the certain biases and craziness. So absolutely don't turn away any great founder, but it just seems to be a big group that we support. Sure. And um, to kind of come um, full circle in terms of all the advice you've given, uh, can you describe maybe a, a change that you helped one of your clients make or something you pointed out in their pitch process where they implemented it and then boom, they walked in the door, they got funded. Um, maybe it was in terms of their pitch, their personal presentation, but but any anything that jumps out to you in terms of a particular moment? I could give you several actually. So one big one I would say is this one founder, this is actually multiple cases, but I'm thinking of another one in particular where she was trying to fundraise for over a year came into our program. It was mostly around her story. She kept trying to data dump. She didn't personalize it. And your story is proprietary to you. We say investors buy into you before what you do. Because if you had to pivot or something were to happen, you're the one to move the needle at the end of the day. So we said, get more personal, showcase why you're qualified, tell us more about the background. She had a really impressive background. And I'm going to plug her here because it's called Cheeky Cocktails and she deserves all the recognition. She has now secured eight new investors within months, months. And it was a matter of reorganizing and repositioning herself. And she's an amazing founder as it is. And then same thing with one other founder. So she has an organic tampon company and she's pitching all these male investors who doesn't, don't typically understand what that is, maybe bought some for their wife at a store if they have one. And that's about it. 
She didn't tell anything about the story and why she switched to organic cotton, which is because of endometriosis, which is a serious disorder that is caused by typically a lot of toxins in other period care products. And we said, tell about your story of fixing your own endometriosis with doing this. Boom. Funded through WeFunder, VCs, and um, through a debt option. All because we switched around her story and positioning to not treat the audience as a target consumer and educate them. Ton of new male investors because they could understand it. And that goes back to your earlier point about explaining the problem to people who may be like those male investors aren't going to be the consumer, right? Um, and so that and that narrative, that that personal narrative, um, really kind of builds into both of those examples you just gave. So, wow. Well, congratulations to Cheeky Funding. I'll put a link to uh, Cheeky Funding in today's show notes. If uh, Yeah, Cheeky Cocktails. I'm a huge fan of the espresso syrup. So, um, and because of her storytelling, she actually just got featured by the Kardashians 818 Tequila brand. And it wasn't a matter of just having these natural connections in the world. She just worked her butt off for it and still utilized her storytelling in order to leverage it. Nice. Well, uh, I know your first company was very successful, pitched several times successfully, exited, you know, in a, in a in just a great, great experience. But is there something you wish you had known when you founded your first company? What would the number one thing be? I would say that I wish I knew how to leverage more, more of my connections and people and asking for help. I always felt so guilty about, oh, well, you know, why would I pay someone or why should I do this if I can figure it out? And that wasn't always the healthy or best option because I'd be working insane hours and it was very mentally taxing. And that's every founder doesn't have the budget to do that. Like I lived in my parents' basement while semi-trucks of inventory were getting shipped to their garage before I got into a warehouse. I was paying family to come help ship orders when I got on Good Morning America for the first time. Like it was very, very gritty, but I wish I took the leap into hiring people with certain expertise before having to always figure it out myself. I think I could have gotten further faster. And um, I had a mentor at one point towards the end, just say, you could pay someone $40 an hour to do something, 30 to 40, do it. Even though you might want that money because so you don't have to eat ramen for the week doesn't matter. Like find someone with the expertise, learn from them and let them stay in their lane to help you. And that really resonated with me because I always thought, okay, well, if I would like that because I'm not paying myself, so why don't I just go figure it out? And that wasn't the right mindset to have. But I'm also glad that no one told me how hard it was going to be as an entrepreneur because I probably wouldn't have stuck with it or ever started. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. And in terms of asking for help, uh, can you ask for help for people with no startup experience, like for a pitch? Could you practice a pitch on somebody that's just willing to lend an ear? And, and is that ever helpful just to get their outside perspective? Yeah, totally. It depends, though, because I would say that in the startup world, there's always going to be people who want to give unsolicited advice and share their opinion and tell you how to do things, even though they've never been where you want to go. There's plenty of that. But if you're trying to get the reps in for pitching, and getting the right words out in a certain time frame, it's so useful to practice with an audience and maybe have someone point some things out. But I would be mindful of in terms of the content of a pitch and getting an outsider's opinion, they should probably have some startup experience. Okay. And should people watch Shark Tank? 
It's so unrealistic. People want to pitch <laughs> investors like it's a gamified Shark Tank pitch. And we have we literally, I've worked with several Shark Tank founders who still need help fundraising. They might have a great pitch and it's, we've read their pitch and it's all this marketing jargon and it's so fluffy and it's meant for TV. And while, yeah, that's great. And it's some exposure that you could maybe never pay for. And it's an amazing opportunity, but it's not the reality in closing out an entire round for investment in order to get you, you know, 12 to 18 months of runway or whatever you're going for. So sure, maybe you can get inspired, but it's not realistic. Okay. So don't do exactly what they do. I, I hear you on the jargon thing. I see websites and it's like, innovating technology at the intersection of like, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I don't know what you do. That's, that's everyone not a, says that <laughs> it's not a sentence, right? It, it barely qualifies. Uh, okay. One final question is, um, you know, there's a lot of guides you can Google, like, you know, how to start building a pitch deck. Do you ever look at those, those guides and is there anything they're all, they're all missing or are, are there, are there things like people see online in terms of resources where you're, you just look at it and you're like, stop repeating this advice. This is bad advice. This is bad information. Don't do this. It's actually not a good way to create a pitch. Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> we are so bullish on writing out a pitch script before ever creating a pitch deck. Don't start with a pitch deck template because you're typically going to overshare, not involve the right kinds of information, and it's going to be hard to be clear and concise. So we've actually helped founders raise without a deck, Katie, my business partner, has invested in several companies without ever seeing a deck. It's because the founder can communicate so well. So we focus on the content for a pitch first, and the deck is a sidekick. It's an afterthought. It's a backup. It's easy to create once you have the precise language of what you want to verbalize. Kat, thank you again for all this amazing information. If people want to work with Power to Pitch, I believe the website is powertopitch.com. Is there anywhere else you'd like people to follow you? Any like blogs or podcasts or anything you do regularly? I would say the biggest form of interaction you can have with us is LinkedIn at just K-A-T Weaver, W-E-A-V-E-R. I post daily pitch tips and startup experiences and resources. And the best part is that it's free. So if you're not ready to fundraise just yet, LinkedIn is the number one platform. And then we do share some content on YouTube at Power to Pitch as well. Well, uh, founder, if you're listening, go get your 30-second elevator pitch ready. Skip the deck for now and uh, check back in with Kat uh, if you want to know if you did it right. Thank you so much for joining me, Kat. It was really a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So remember what Kat said, practice makes perfect. And that goes for all of us. What, you think that she and I just hopped on a call and did this podcast? No, no, no. We actually rehearsed it 12 times before we actually brought it to you. Yeah, this was the 13th recording. That's how much we practiced it. That's not true. But you should still practice how you present yourself to other people. The point still stands and you should just go back and re-listen to everything Kat said if you have any doubts about that. Now, she mentioned an app called Speako that can help you build your public speaking skills. And you can find that at speako.co. That's S-P-E-E-K-O. And for your convenience, I've put a link to that in the description of today's episode. If you're enjoying this show, then please tell one friend about it, even if it's not a startup founder. You know, I think Kat had some great tips on how to just present your best self, didn't she? Anyway, the funding blueprint is produced by me, Cody Goff, with audio and video editing by Sean Patel. 
Sean does amazing sound design and audio video production work. So get in touch with Sean at seanpatel.com. And if you need help making your branded podcast as good as this one, then hit me up at cody at academicpodcasts.com. Thanks again for joining me. I'll see you next week.